Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. And also, welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, last time I came with you from what with a designer interview, uh, it was for the GMT P500, so a GMTA publisher. And the P500 is a very unique way of uh, distributing games relative to how, what we're used to. Uh, so I have another project, uh, and I have two co-designers that are going to talk about their newest project also on the GMT P500. As I released the video, we uh, that this will be going live. So with this hot off the presses, uh, new project. And you know I like my unique games, my unique voices, history. This brings together a lot of stuff. Uh, so I'm going to introduce this man first. He introduced himself to me. Uh, he reached out to me. He's like, I like what you're doing, Jason. Uh, it sounds like a good fit for the channel. I got history. I got resistance. I got alternate histories. Bam. Uh, said all the magic words, my friend. <laughs> also, a post-colonial. Once you said post-colonial, I'm like, okay, I got to have this man on. Uh, he is a Maurice Suckling. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Jason. Okay. Uh, and co-designing uh, is Daniel Burt. Well, coming at us from uh, across the pond in merry old England. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here. The game is uh, Resistance Britannia, or uh, is Resistance Rebellion? I get those R words uh, confused. What's the game called? Yeah, it's Rebellion Britannia. And, and it absolutely is about resistance in first century Rome. So after the very well-known Roman invasion, which most people know was a success if you're coming from a Roman perspective. But after that, in that first century, there are a lot of rebellions. And uh, this story is often untold. Uh, if it is told, it's often, I think, Boudicca's rebellion is the one that, that people know about, or sometimes uh, she's pronounced Boudicca, but she's this, this statue of this kind of impressive warrior queen with the chariots that's in various places in central London and various other places. Uh, so that rebellion by her tribe, the Aikini, is somewhat known, but there are a lot more rebellions going on. There's a lot more resistance to Rome. It wasn't simply Rome invaded, end of the story. Mm -hmm. Nor was it Rome invaded, Boudicca got upset, burnt some places, end of the story. The British tribes kept uh, resisting, kept uh, attacking um, Roman enclaves, Roman settlements. They kept attacking each other. They couldn't really agree on things, which was kind of partly why Rome was so successful in the first place. So this is a game that's uh, about that. That's the, that's the setting, that first century of, of turbulence. Okay, so how we're gonna proceed with this uh, episode is that we're gonna get into the theme, we're gonna get into the history, and I might put a timestamp because I think there's people that want to know mechanisms. We're going to save the mechanism talk for the second half uh, because this theme is so interesting to me. Uh, you're speaking my language, my friend. You're speaking of not only rebellion and resistance, but you're speaking of the untold stories that, you know, because we assume that we follow the imperial march of whatever institution. And then it's like, that's the story. And then like a little rebellion will flare up here and there, like you were saying before, Bodicea or you know, different, uh, you know, noteworthy ones, but then we just kind of like assume, no, it's not quite. They have to constantly, as an imperial power, impose the power and deal with resistance. So that's, um, so we need to talk about that as a theme and as a general history thing. And then the second half, we'll get to mechanisms. So my mechanism people, 
hold on to your seats. Okay, so um, here's another reason I was interested in this particular episode. So uh, I don't know if either or both of you gentlemen, uh, and if you're watching the video, you'll see it. If you're watching the podcast, I'm reaching for Pandemic Fall of Rome. So uh, Pandemic Fall of Rome was in the history line of uh, pandemics. And you all know Pandemic's my favorite game. Uh, so in this particular game, it goes over the same time period, the, uh, well, actually more the fall of Rome. So like a couple of centuries afterwards, but it's dealing with the same thing in terms of barbarians, uh, you know, wanting to quote unquote conquer Rome. Like the, in this, in Pandemic Fall of Rome, the, every tribe, so you have the Visigoths and you have the Jutes and you have the, all these different tribes. And they're all trying to enter Rome and they're all trying mm -hmm. to conquer Rome. And that's kind of, in terms of the way we think of barbarians, that's kind of what we think, right? Like they're all kind of the same mm -hmm. and they all want the same things. And so uh, talk about that a little bit. You guys both nodded your heads and talk about how this story is, can be dominant and what you're trying to do with your game. But let's talk about Pandemic Romo first. Uh, you both nodded sure. your heads. So I wonder if you have the same reaction that I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I know the game well. Um, I own it and have, have played it quite a number of times, um, including with students as a sort of, you know, looking at the historical side of it. And um, it's an interesting game. I, I, I love the, the mechanics and the way in which they, they've taken the pandemic model and kind of altered it to, to fit this. Um, but I think it, you're, you're right in that it still sort of follows this traditional model of almost, you know, opposing military forces. That's that's what it's about. You know, there's there's a one one track sort of uh, purpose for the tribes, for the Gallic tribes and the German tribes. They just basically want to get their forces into Rome and destroy Rome. And in our particular scenario, we're dealing with something that's quite different from that. Um, and so <clears throat> I think it's sort of an interesting uh, comparison, actually, because we have some, as we'll come to presumably later in the more mechanic section, there are some pandemic sort of DNA in the, in the mechanics we're using as well. But, you know, we can talk about that later. But, um, yeah, very interested. Uh, I think that's a great and fascinating sort of uh, interpretation of the game, but it's still sort of at that quite high level where um, it's kind of, you know, the, the definitions of victory in these sorts of games can be so nuanced. And in that game, it's kind of, it's, there's no nuance. It's the there's traditional. No <laughs> yeah. it's does Rome tradition. fall or does Rome stand? That's the yeah. only nuance you get. And yeah. the idea, like you have the different colors for the tribes. So theoretically, they're different. So like the Huns and the and mm -hmm. other things, the Anglo-Saxons and the Franks and the Visigoths. And like they're, they're, they're mechanically different in that, like there's a different number of cards in order yeah. to convert them. That's it. Like they're functionally the same. Like yeah. in pandemic, you got the four colors, but they're really the same disease. They act the same ways. The idea that like we can put that on peoples, mm. we can put that on groups of peoples that they, you know, they exist in relation to us and they all want the same things. They want what we have. <laughs> and that's kind of, that's how we game it out. Uh, so what, when Maurice reached out to me, one of the first things that was, that struck me was the idea that like you're making a game with different factions, but they want different things, mm. act differently. Maybe, you know, talk a little bit about yeah. that distinction there. 
Yeah, so, well, there's a lot to say there, but, uh, and the interesting that you, uh, you know, bring up a pandemic for the Rome too, because essentially that, that exists within what I would describe as a sort of colonialist tradition, where it's, it's about being imperialist, it's about being expansive, expanding, conquering, dominating others. And, um, you know, war games use that mechanic a lot. It, it's kind of an obvious mechanical uh, metaphor. You're working with space aboard, so you're going to try and control it. Um, what we're doing is, our, our game exists within what I would describe as sort of a, a nascent post-colonial tradition, which uh, is, is not really in the mainstream, um, but it is in historical board war games. It's, it's been boiling away for sort of 10 years or so, and we see it through games like coin games, the counterinsurgency games that GMT publish. We see it in um, games like the Red Burnous, which is about to, to come out about French invasions in Algeria, where it's a cooperative game working against the, the colonialist invaders. Now, our, our game exists within that, like I said, it's, it's really kind of nascent, th th this kind of tradition. So the idea there is that there are two key aspects that, that I think put something in a, in a post-colonial space. And, and when I say that, I don't mean the colonial ceases to exist. Uh, it's just that this post-colonial adds its voice to this conversation. Um, so Rome is concerned with conquest. So it's a very colonialist uh, perspective. But for the British tribes, there are these two uh, elements that I think are critical that kind of move it into this other space. One is agency. So you get to play as this other faction, as in this case, indigenous peoples who don't have a voice through much of history because they use an oral tradition, something we're very familiar with through, throughout a lot of history. Right. And to be clear, in pandemic fall of Rome, there's no chance to play as the Franks. And the Jews. Right. Like you can right. only play as the Romans. And that's if you know, don't know anything about the game, know that. Know right. that there's mm -hmm. one perspective, a period perspective. And a lot of games do that. A lot of games uh, talk about just the imperial perspective and what this game is introducing. And like you said before, the coin does, but if you don't know coin, it's kind of an asymmetric thing. So you're like having different factions that have different goals. So that's the DNA that is present in this game is the, is the idea of different factions and different goals. Uh, and that creates a lot more space for different voices to be heard. Right, exactly. So, and that's the other aspect, which is to do with different perspectives, different motivations, different resources, different capabilities. So a, a colonialist perspective encourages us to think that, hey, if, if, a, if a polity, a, a state, a nation, a tribe, a, a, a faction, if they are poor at being imperial, being imperialist, being colonizers, then, I, I, you know, the assumption is, well, they are lesser, right? But that assumes that, um, look, it's not necessarily the case that a, uh, a polity, uh, if it's poor at colonizing, it doesn't necessarily mean it has thwarted imperial ambitions. It might indeed have quite different motivations and agendas, be trying to do something quite different. So therefore judging it by imperial metrics is a terrible idea. It's, it's just forcing everything into the same kind of channel. Did you expand? Did you conquer? Mm -hmm. Well, for these British tribes, they mostly weren't that interested in dominating the British Isles. They weren't trying to out-Rome Rome. 
They were trying to survive. They were trying to generate agriculture, look after sites of ceremonial importance, mm -hmm. generate crafts. They're trying to trade. They would, uh, from time to time, show their, their kind of uh, volatility and their, their sort of military potency. But equally, sometimes they would um, be client kingdoms to Rome. They were trying to find a way to survive. So we are trying to model that in, in our game and, and show that Rome can have this very particular kind of way of being and trying to impose itself. Uh, and that leads to victory for the player looking after Rome. But for the British tribes, there are different avenues to, to victory to, to touch on Dan's point. It's about perspectives of what, what we even mean by, by victory. So that's what we're attempting to, to model, which is why I say it sort of sits in this, it belongs in some part into this kind of post-colonial new tradition I think is developing. And that, that could be a weird thing because as gamers, <laughs> that's what we used to. We used to access allies. We used to, uh, you know, Fortress America when I was growing up. Um, we're used to like, there's a lot of popular video games like the Civ games and you know that I forget there's one like really popular um, like, kind of Civ-esque game right now. I forget exactly what the name is, but like uh, I read an article about like kids are going to college and they're, you know, they're, what they know of the world comes from this imperialist video game. <laughs> oh wow uh, and i have to i'm gonna have to look up what the what that one is i know crusader kingdoms is one that people are... okay yes that's the one thank you i don't have you, you saved me the trouble <laughs> yeah crusader, yes, crusader kings King. yeah because like like literally like the professors will come in and the way that like so there's the imperialist outlook there's the general out like the general like the, the warlord outlook you know so and, and you know this idea that like you know if a general wants something then like it happens mm. and like they face they only face resistance from another general like this stuff is that like there's so much layered and so much deep it's beyond the, the scope of this conversation. Uh, where if from a, I mean, we can even call it an indigenous perspective. Like, you know, we usually refer to the indigenous as like the Americas, you know, uh, native tribes and like, you know, there was, there's a British indigenous tradition. And you mentioned before, Marisa, so glad you mentioned this, the idea of like ceremony, sacred mm. spaces. You know, that's the important part. So like they're, you know, they want to tune to the land, so to speak. And like their kind of apotheosis as a people doesn't come from the conquest of other lands. It comes from, you know, kind of becoming more and more attached to one's own land via yeah. religious tradition and, you know, ceremony. And like, that's a huge thing. It's like, I, I imagine a game isn't capable of kind of communicating all that, but at least it's kind of underpinning your mm -hmm. game. Is that, is, that, is that a good way to say it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, uh, again, I, I know that there's the mechanics discussion up, upcoming, but, you know, in, in our game, Rome gets to build stuff in Britain. And when it does that, so it builds forts, it builds settlements. These are ways of it generating victory points. But when it does that, it also antagonizes the British. It also means that the British uh, get angry about it. Actually, it's giving, it's giving rise to tension, which the British can use. Um, but, you know, in in real life, the Romans built these roads, they built these straight roads, which are efficient and sensible from point A to point B, and they built them through British landscapes, which were ceremonial significance. It's Stonehenge. It's like they did it on purpose. It's like they, they see a sacred site and it's like, let's make a giant concrete road yeah. right through it as a, a declaration that like, this doesn't belong to you anymore, yeah. it belongs to us. Yeah, that's right. absolutely what they were doing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, so then introduce us to these three factions. We don't know. I don't know. Like so, there, so there are four factions. So so Rome, oh, I, yeah. first one, and then the other three. I don't care about Rome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So it, it depends what uh, you know of, of the British Isles and, and kind of where. So there's the Aikini who are a tribe based in essentially modern day Norfolk, which is the kind of the lump on the right, the bottom right, kind of southeast. There's the Brigantes who are kind of modern day Yorkshire, which is further north. And there's the Silures who are kind of southeast Wales. Uh, these are the three factions, three British factions that we we use. There are many other, I mean, essentially every region uh, in the British Isles at the time is dominated by a series of tribes, normally one larger mm -hmm. tribe. When you see these maps of, of uh, Roman Britain and pre-Roman Britain, they're essentially demarcated into who controls which bits of region. So the, so the region itself is not only controlled by that tribe, it's also that's the name of the region. Mm. Um, but yeah, those are the three main tribes I've been talking a lot. Maybe Dan would like to say a bit more mm. about, about those. Sure, tribes. yeah, well, those, I mean, those three tribes were the three tribes who, you know, in the history that remains from the period, which is, you know, half a side of A4, if we're lucky, um, who are known to have rebelled. Uh, speak a little bit about sources, right? Because mm. that's, that's an under, that's a under understood thing i know sure sure uh like you know like we, we often don't have the sources to understand the other side because they didn't they had oral traditions not written traditions and yeah we're getting it from the british perspective so like tell us a little bit about what we know and how we know about these 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 uh, entities that maurice introduced us to. sure um well i mean the, in terms of the the history we have the written history we have there's no uh ancient british written history so it's all from the Roman perspective. Um, I think it's, uh, well, there's obviously uh, Agricola, which is about the later campaigns uh, in Scotland, um, which uh, has about, I think Morris can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about a paragraph about, you know, the, the, the period prior to Agricola's campaign in Scotland. It's not a huge amount. And then there's Cassius Dio, uh, who also writes about a century later about the, um, the period. So there's a lot of crossover. Obviously, there's not a huge amount of uh, sort of um, embellishment of the stories beyond sort of the writers giving grand speeches. They love giving grand speeches to the generals on both sides, you know, from the British mm. perspective and from the Roman. And, you know, there's interesting sort of political stuff that comes through the words that they give to the British leaders, uh, sort of condemning the, um, you know, the, the, the Roman imperialism. There's sort of, you know, the writers almost use these speeches to kind of needle at Rome for its sort of imperialist nature, for its decadence and for things like that. And so you almost can get a sense of some sort of respect for this resistance that was mm. present. And, you know, Morris and I have spoken about this, this in, over the course of development, you know, is that a victory in itself for these tribes to be recorded in the history of, of the victor is surely, you know, the that's some sort of victory that they have a legacy that even the people who sort of conquered them have to have to, had to accept and wrote about. Um, so there's the you know there's there's these sort of historical um, uh, written histories, 
um, and I'll let Morris say more about that in a minute. And then there's, you know, the archaeological finds. Right. So those are the two things we we had to work with, really. A lot of coins, um, some sort of uh, some Roman graves and then a lot of Roman um, artifacts and buildings. And, and, you know, they still exist today, some of them. So yeah, and ashes. So seeing, you know, that St Albans was burnt uh, is, well, that that's kind of one of our main, main sources. So yeah, there's not a lot to, uh, to extrapolate from really. Um, the Romans yeah, were very successful in, in kind of squashing these, these cultures. In some ways, you know, they weren't interested in, like we were saying earlier, they weren't interested in uh, written mm, mm. anyway. It was, it was more uh, oral traditions. Mm. Right. And like, you know, even these speeches, right? You mentioned before, because I, I, I know this from the, uh, my own indigenous perspective, like, you know, we'll get a speech of this tribal leader, right, in the in the thing. And they're like, you know, we take it at face value, like the instincts take it at face value, but like, did they really say it that way? Or is that the yeah. author? There's, there's, also, there? there's also a gender dynamic in this too, which is that for Rome, there's something terribly uh, wrong with having this strong female character, mm. having Boudicca, uh, speak out and lead men into into battle. There's something so self-evidently uh, uh, broken about this that that giving Boudicca these words is a way of condemning the British themselves and saying, "Look, they're, they're controlled by this woman, and you know this is against nature. Clearly, this mm -hmm. is wrong." And so Rome uses that as well so yeah it's all these machinations and moving political pieces around in order to control the narrative and you know that's i guess what we're, we're attempting to do is to try and break that open expose that a bit and and have an opportunity to re-explore the way that narratives are, are generated so is it fair to say i mean given that this the um sources are you know like questionable and we're trying to guess off of archaeology and all these other sciences is it fair to say that uh, as designers, the both of you had to extrapolate a little bit, you know, and, yeah. in terms of uh, the three factions and how they play and what they want and how they work, you know, it isn't clear what they, what, what was clear is that they didn't want empire. That's, that is clear. And so, yeah. um, you know, they wanted like kind of like, they want to be left alone and, and you know, be in the land. So how much extrapolation did you feel like you had to do in, in order to reflect the reality of the, the three different factions? So, I think, um, yeah, it's kind of when we when we sat there and looked at the sources we had, and they, you know there have been so many. I meant to bring some with me. I've, I've left them all in the house, but so many books written on the subject um, about what is actually, you know, really a very small amount of evidence, even if you can call it evidence, because it's written, you know, a, a century or so after a lot of it. Um, it gave us this sort of simultaneous uh great feeling and quite daunting feeling because you, when you've got a smaller sort of history you've got a little bit more leeway as to what you do with things so um but it also kind of started to quite neatly fall into place so um in terms of the the three british tribes you know these three tribes that were, were historic, historically rebellious to rome there's you know written evidence of that um, they did have three quite different approaches, which we were able to then sort of factor into the game. So with the Silurids in Wales, they were, you know, um, 
guerrilla warfare experts. They were, you know, living in mountainous terrain that Rome physically had trouble conquering. They're the most traditionally sort of military faction that you can play as. They have, they're closer to Rome. It's about, you know, war bands and fighting and pillaging and, and so on. That, that's, that's kind of the, the, the most simple faction, I suppose. And then you have uh, the Brigantes in the north and the Aikini, who are both ruled by strong women, as, as Morris says, um, but quite different. So the Brigantes were largely a client kingdom. Um, in some fictional work uh, that's been written about the period, Cartimandua, who's their queen, is, is kind of portrayed as a bit of a snake, very pro-Roman, very anti-British. She has this sort of slight reputation, possibly unfairly. I think she was mainly about making her kingdom survive. But so we have, you know, elements of that in there. And then with um, Boudicca, you have far more of the sort of the wronged tribe, you know. So they start off relatively indifferent towards Rome, possibly slightly positive. But as, as we'll see when we talk about mechanics later, that may change. And then you become very much this sort of, the, as the statue shows, this sort of strong woman on a chariot and her aim is to basically make Rome pay. It mm. doesn't, you know, there's no sort of, I want to control their land, I want to take over their settlements. She just wants to burn their settlements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, so we had that sort of nice leeway from having, you know, sort of fragments of history that we could then sort of build around. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, so we do know that uh, the Aikini Boudicca's tribe began as a client kingdom, began this, this period as a client kingdom for Rome, uh, to Rome. But that switched at the death of her husband. The, the story is that uh, he, trying to play it safe, gave half of his kingdom to Rome and half of his kingdom to his wife. And Rome said, great, we'll also have the other half. Um, <laughs> and uh, raped her daughters. Oh, no. And uh, Boudicca then rose up and, and somewhat unusually was also able to engage other tribes, the Trinovantes most famously as well, with her. And it was quite a momentum uh, that she generated at the Battle of Watling Street. There are talks, again, this is from Roman sources, but possibly 100,000 uh, warriors faced off against Rome, Roman legions that were hurrying back from trying to suppress the Druids over in Mona or Anglesey as it is now. Um, and it was a disaster for the, for the British. But um, hard to know really exactly what those numbers were like and people still don't actually know where that battle actually took place. Watling mm. Street is a long Roman road and it could have occurred in many places along there. Uh, but it, it speaks to uh, Boudicca's unusual ability to, to ignite the other, other tribes. And we do know that the Brigantes also began this period, spent much of this time as a client kingdom, but that switched. Her husband betrayed her and um, things got complicated. And as Dan said, the Solaris were really more irregular warfare, more kind of guerrilla warfare. So we extrapolated those key tenets and, mm -hmm. and built something around it. But, you know, this is a game where we're modeling motivations and high level uh, ideas more than we're modeling uh, specifics. So we don't, there's no 
tight scale of uh, unit numbers. You know, a piece doesn't represent 100 warriors or 1,000 warriors. We've left that all completely uh, sort of abstract. Although I, I guess I'd say that we do know that Rome most likely only had four legions on the island uh, on, on British Isles at the time. And there's only four legions in this game. Uh, legions are represented not by uh, totals of, of men, but instead by, by step losses. There are three step losses that they lose cohesion. And when they lost enough cohesion, they are destroyed. And we know that uh, Boudicca got close to destroying one of the legions. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, th there are things we had to extrapolate, but uh, we abstracted close to the, the kind of what we consider the main motivations and the main sort of high level points to be. I've held you back long enough. Let's get into mechanisms. <laughs> We're right there. I think we, I think we have enough of an understanding of the theme and the again motivation. Like you know, I'm a huge, I'm big into understanding games. Like okay, what, as a player, what is motivating me? What am I? What are what is my goals? Right. So then you know, in an asymmetric war game, it's very vital to understand the different corners and what motivates us. So let's get into how that motivation translates into a game. So cards. Is a card-driven game. As I was reading the description, I was very excited. I get very excited about my cards. Uh, there is a like, it's it's a kind of like multi-system, right? So like, there's different ways to play cards. There's different timing for the playing of cards. Some cards fire off now. Some cards fire off later. Or you kind of prep cards for later. Uh, so like, I know that's kind of like you know, I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there, but that's the part that interested me most sure. is this card play system. So please, either of you gentlemen can you know uh, open up about how you realize this vision do you want to go ahead morris uh yeah i mean poof um so in essence this is a uh i don't know if there's the best way into it but as dan said there's there's the dna of a number of different other kinds of design that are sort of wrapped up in this so um pandemic has some lineage in this game insofar as uh there's tension tension occurs in regions and when it hits a certain level you can't get more than four little tokens of, of tension in a, in a region that's really bad news for Rome so Rome is trying to control that now that's not necessarily uh, tension that's controlled by the players uh, who are controlling the British tribes that that's tension that's generated as much by the game system itself so you turn over an events card at the beginning of a, of a of a round and that says hey here are places where tension is rising or it might even be tension is, is falling and there might be other things going on including leadership changes which you don't control um, mm. directly yourself so we have this this notion of, of tension that's increasing that rome needs to stay on top of that the british tribes in fact are interested in antagonizing and making life difficult for Rome. So it's a bit whack-a-mole for them. They, they've only got four legions. They're going around the British Isles trying to stomp on that tension. But they can't fight tension with legions. They can only fight it with political dimensions, with, with suppression, basically, which is um, they need legions to help them do that, but legions don't actually do it. So tensions, tension are represented by these little tokens that are then flipped and those of you who are familiar with coin will know that that's how terrorist cells are represented in uh, what the labyrinth is kind of pre-coin game that Volker Ronke also designed. Or uh, we, we see this, um, we see guerrilla cells 
kind of uh, become evident by, by flipping them to the, to the embossed side. We have a similar dynamic where a tension piece might be flipped to its warband side. Well, now it's dangerous in a different kind of way. So now Rome can fight those uh, warbands with legions, but you know, every time that Rome marches legions around the place, it's also generating tension. It's generating problems for itself. It's kind of this feedback loop of just the more you try and stomp on something, particularly you know, in a regular warfare, well, it doesn't necessarily work out the way that you plan. So Rome has a lot of these kinds of problems it's trying to, to manage. For the British, the war tribes, uh, the war bands are um, effective, but not that effective. You know, we know from the records that um, Rome was very successful. Its legions were extremely difficult to beat. When they did get beaten, it was normally through um, ambushes, through being surprised, through uh, overextending themselves by them being exhausted. So we've reflected that in the way that you can kind of chip away at these, um, these legions by reducing its, its cohesion over time, but just by them trying to do too much, marching too far, fighting too many battles uh, next to each other. So those are some of the, the, the core um, concepts. I talked a little bit about the, the event cards. So, so I could tell you a bit more, more about the, the sequence of play perhaps, which is- so, Yeah, so you were describing like the board uh, ecosystem. Yeah. So the board ecosystem has these as tokens, as tensions, and as the Roman player, you know, you're looking at it and going, okay, uh, you know, where's the hotspots? Yeah. Like, you know, trying to figure out, you know, use your resources to kind of diminish the hotspots. Uh, and the the tribes in their own ways are kind of like, you know, defending against the intrusions and you're saying for one faction wants to destroy what Rome builds and another faction wants to kind of raid. Not, so, um, yeah, so let's, let's get to the player side, like how to, how to make that real. That's where I get my cards. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, uh, Dan, maybe you want to take over. Um, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so each each of the Britain factions and, and the Rome faction um, have a, a deck of cards. The uh, the Britain, all the, the decks, as in, um, if you're familiar with uh, Quartermaster General, the deck, in, and, and I believe it's in some um, other games as well, like maybe Marvel Champions, the deck is kind of your hit point. So it doesn't get recycled. Um, you know, once you've played a card, that's it. Um, it's in your discard pile. So uh, there's a, an element of managing your deck because if it runs out, you're out of actions, you're going to start losing victory points and so on. Um, and there'll be some crossover between the decks. Um, when we first came into, into the, this design after our initial, this started off, um, we won't go into the history, it started off as a, a sort of... Um, a game that we developed in a in a game jam over 72 hours so it was a, originally a, a sort of an expansion to um pendragon which is a coin game um and as it became a card driven game there's sort of elements where we took okay well what do you do when you're choosing your action selection in coin you know how how can you represent that in cards? So there are certain cards that every faction has to have. They have to be able to move, they have to be able to attack, they have to be able to build in Rome's case or destroy in the case of the Ikini. But then we have, have been able to add more flavor to each of the factions through different cards in their deck, different effects and so on. Um, the Britain 
faction also have to take into consideration what is kind of a, a suit on each of the cards. And this is where we've sort of factored in the, the more slightly more esoteric concerns, the things that you can't really model on the board. So these concerns of trade, culture, um, ceremony, and crafts. So um, all of the cards will have a, an icon of this suit on them. And then at the end of the game, there's victory points uh, earned through sequences of play. So if you've got a run of three to four craft cards and then you have a score of three or four towards your crafts at the end of the game, and that's compared with the other people. So as well as trying to look at the board state and think, okay, what do I want to do? I want to, you know, move war bands into here, generate some tension here. You're also thinking, but I also want to play a card that's going to build on my uh, cultural development, my my craft making, my my ceremonial side, um, and this is slightly again asymmetric in terms of each of the Britain factions because um, the Ikeni were very much a, a trading uh, faction, a trading tribe. They had um, a salt trade that that with the Romans uh, were engaged in and wrote about. Um, the Silures were closer to. Mona with the uh, Druids uh, there, so they're more focused on um, the ceremonial side of things. And then the Brigantes with their big sort of sway, you know, large tracts of agricultural land are pr primarily interested in the agriculture. Um, so that's how we've kind of tried to, to kind of get that side of things into the design as well. And so tomorrow. the cards are a fixed deck? Of cards, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like a big deck, like we're talking like you know, uh, each of the Britain factions are twenty-six cards, and I think Rome has thirty or thirty-two. So yeah, uh, thirty-five or something. Yeah. 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 There's small deck because this game plays in about sixty to ninety minutes. It's twelve rounds, and each round you basically so the sequence is you turn over this event card, which. Um, has some global game state change. Maybe tension rises, falls somewhere. Maybe. Uh, Prasitagus dies, so Boudicca takes over, so that changes motivations for Aikini, or, or the weather is bad, or, or the emperor says, hey, I need you to score victory points this turn, otherwise it's bad news, or... That's, uh, that's how you know well, it's a war game, by the way, when there's, like, weather status. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so then, uh, after that, everyone takes a turn, and in their turn they do, it's, it's a super simple process where they get to play a prepared card if they've already prepared one and they have to play it. They have to play it if they prepared it. Then they get to uh, play their card out of their hand that they haven't prepared. Then they get to choose to prepare a card for their next turn, put it face down, and then they, they basically draw back up. So really it's play a card in your turn. But if you want to take that risk reward on, you could play two cards if you prepared it. Mm. Obviously it doesn't work in the first turn. But, you know, that has to trigger, that, that will have to, you'll have to play that card if you prepare it. So the situation might have changed. You might actually be leading your forces into peril or making the situation worse for yourself somehow. But if you get it right, you've got a double move, essentially. That means you're twice as effective as someone who plays it more cautiously. But of course, you're burning up those cards as, as well. So it gets closer towards the end of the game. You're, you know, a bit more constricted. You also, there's a mechanic as well whereby if you don't like any of the cards in your hand, you can burn some and do some sort of set actions that are 
dependable enough that you'll likely be wanting to, to do them to move or to march, but to, to march or to, or to fight perhaps. But um, that's a poor way to go because you will uh, run out of cards soon. You could also decide as the British, you could decide, you know what? I think Rome's about to thump me. I'm gonna burn some cards. I'm gonna declare myself a client kingdom. Now he can't fight. He can't attack me unless he burns even more cards, which is a disaster for him. And if you do this play, it, it's sort of a way of turtling in and getting some victory points and you know, also somewhat reflecting the history as well. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the process. You get to end your round and then you know, everyone does their, their turn in the round and then there's another round. And it's, um, yeah, something that we've been, you know, it, it, it started off, I think it's about 15 rounds when we were earlier in earlier development. We got it down to 12 because it just felt a tighter kind of um, experience. But there's not a lot of, you know, not a lot of pieces on the board, I, I would say. Certainly in Rome's case, there's just four legions. For the British, there might be more, but um, there certainly will be more, but um, they're less powerful pieces. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, like I said, either their attention or they are, um, or their war bands. And then we have Rome building these settlements or forts along the way, right? You get to put a little red fort on or if the British burn it they get to take that off and put a little black one in its place to show that that place has been burnt to the ground so uh, and, and essentially it's it's a cumulative victory point scorer so each turn you're trying to find ways of scoring victory points which you might get through building stuff or burning stuff or you might get through controlling a certain region at a certain time so it doesn't really reward permanence of control of a region, it, it, it rewards more temporary displays of, of military uh, prowess, you know. Yeah, control. And, and mechanically, the way that that will work or that works is, uh, you know, most cards will have more than one function, as you say, and quite a number of the cards will have a scoring function for your faction. So there's a certain you know, strategy of thinking, well, when am, when am I going to be able to play this card that's going to give me the best possible score that I can get from it? Or do I need to play it now for the other action on it where I desperately need to get my, you know, troops from here to here? Yeah. Um, and that's the case with all of, all of the factions with Rome and with each of the Britain factions in that they kind of, not all of their scoring from cards will be in their own deck. But a large majority of it is so they have their masters of their own destiny if you see what i mean it's not just going to be an event cards turned over and well hey whoever controls here scores five victory points they know that okay i've got these cards that will score me points how do i how do i engineer the scenario where i score the most points from these cards and that's really how it works for all of them um, yeah and as dan said there's also this question of uh, trying to discard smartly so that you're building these suits that represent these other dynamics. In the case of trade, it's particularly interesting because the British are trying to, uh, maybe they're trying to score points in trade, but the more that they invest in trade, the better this sort of is for Rome, because really, as much as Rome, we think of it as this imperial force that, that dominates through its legions, actually, it would much rather be using fewer legions and spending far less money on that. What it'd be far more interested in is a, is a Pacific placid populace who's happy to trade. 
and, and in that trading process, they're really engaging in Romanization, mm -hmm. uh, which the Romans are super happy about. So really the best thing that the British tribes could do is, is just kind of be placid and, and trade. And that's the mm -hmm. best thing for Rome. But so there's this tension here between, well, the British want to do that. On the other hand, they don't really want to encourage, you know, essentially they don't want to just give their, their coffers to, to Rome. They want to try and... Mm. You know, Boudicca's resistance was in part, it wasn't just burning stuff because it was um, in their way. It was, it was a display of, of violent displeasure at Rome's presence. Anything mm. Roman was, was becoming a, a problem. So, mm -hmm. you know, th this, this, this kind of problem with the way that the extent to which you invest in trade is also in some ways uh, imperiling British tribes' identity itself so uh, you know it, again this yeah. makes the game sound far more complicated than it really is a lot of these systems are boiled down to quite simple uh simple to learn mechanisms but it's the stuff that we that's our starting point to try and build into the the design and it's mm -hmm. it's not a complicated game it's, it's a lighter war game than most war games are often thought of as being more complicated i'd say this sits more at the lighter end but uh, our hope is that um, there's enough crunchiness in the decisions that you make that it would be satisfying for people who are more accustomed to much more complex games. I have so much to say about like the economic imperialism of trading. <laughs> and, you know, because I, again, I come at it from like, you know, the Latino and indigenous and like, you know, uh, westward expansion of America. Like they wanted the Indians to trade point blank and they wanted to incorporate you know the sioux and the all these other tribes but like you know a big don't enough hunting you know the hunting's not gonna do it become farmers and trappers so that you can yeah. trade that stuff with it and that's how we get the acculturation going and yeah. a lot of tribes uh that i know looked right through that and so we're looking back you know kind of re reading and mapping and a, a similar dynamic is what i'm hearing yeah it's uh, through like, assimilation you know, essentially mm -hmm. And so I have so much to say about that, but that's way beyond. <laughs> uh, but, but point being, like, you know, it's fun to have these games that helps us explore uh, these yeah. concepts. So uh, as we close this out, I mean, I want to talk about, you mentioned before about uh, scoring, but there is, a, there is scoring, like in terms of, you know, like I think we're used to war games where the, the effect is zero sum, like, okay, conquer units and all that kind of thing. So uh, help us understand like scoring and how to win because there's different, um, victory conditions because if, if tribes want different things or if their mm -hmm. legions want different things then they're going to win different ways so like yeah. how do i know if i won <laughs> if i'm any of these particular factions so, so I, I can i can start that off and say and say that yeah contrary to, to lots of war games there's there's only really one automatic lose condition and that's if rome has so many settlements or forts burnt that becomes an automatic loss for rome it's it's essentially uh, its power is is broken is kind of how we might think of that. So, but that's, it depends how you play as to how likely that is. But essentially winning is, is dictated by being highest up a victory point track, which moves around the board. So each turn you are looking to use your cards well to figure out how do I, how do I score some points here? You know, might be one or two, three or four, and you're just chipping away, trying to trying to get yourself further up that that track. There are ways in which Rome, in particular, can lose points, and that's by 
having this tension that I was talking about earlier rise too much in too many places, but then mm -hmm. it starts falling down. So mm -hmm. that's something that's, that's a, a lever really that Rome needs to be on top of. But um, yeah, you know, there's, there's just some player psychology in that, that it's just, it feels good to be accumulating stuff. It feels good to be kind of moving up that track and going somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, in part, that's, that's why we, we mentioned some, we mentioned the pandemic was in this DNA of this game and there's some coin in here. There's also, Dan mentioned Quartermaster General. That's a game, that's a series uh, came out a few years ago that's a light war game. It's on a few different topics now, World War II, World War I, the Peloponnesian War uh, amongst them. Um, and we took some of that from there. We, we like that sort of simple idea that, hey, I can understand that, that I'm, I'm doing well because th I'm three points ahead of you. But you can look at your hand and say, you know what, I've got this combination that I'm planning to play, which is going to change everything, and you don't know that yet. So mm -hmm. uh, essentially, that's that's how that works. And I think, yeah, to to expand on that, it, it adds this interesting player dynamic in that, you know, obviously, all of the Britain tribes, to a greater or lesser degree, don't want Rome to run away with it. And they can kind of cooperate with one another mm -hmm. to help achieve that. But by doing that, they're then possibly not scoring victory points off each other that they could otherwise. So there's this sort of sort of precarious alliance that can form between players, but then it can quite quickly fall apart. You know, someone might say, okay, let's ally, let's go and clear Rome out of the southeast, you know, let's, let's burn some things down there. And then one of them might notice, well, hang on a minute, because he's doing that, he's left all of this area completely open for me to move my warbands into and effectively claim this scoring card that will give me lots of victory points because I dominate, you know, this huge area. So um, hopefully, because the game plays quickly, it'll generate a lot of these sorts of interesting things that will happen. And then people will sit there and go, oh, I want to try that again. You know, I'm not having you do that to me next time, you know. And, and that's kind of what we, we've aimed for, this sort of, um, yeah, as, as Morris says, it's towards the lighter end of the war games in terms of the mechanics, you know, it's card driven. So you really, as long as you can read what's on the card and we've explained it well <laughs> you should be able to know how to play just by sitting and and you know playing through the first couple of rounds but i think the decision space and the not just between the players but how you play your cards what order you're playing them in um i think it should be open to quite a lot of replayability i hope you know that's that's the idea okay and there is a solo mode or so or it's, it's one to four yeah, exactly. so, yeah. So how are you able to, uh, is it one of those things where it's like, because I know um, in some coin games, you know, if you're down factions, like let's say there's four factions, but there's two players, you, you animate mm. one of the uh, things. So are the factions animated in a solo game? Yeah, it's all built into the, the card system. So uh, a lot of those coin games have a kind of flow chart that you, that you follow. Mm. We just were able to do away with all of that. It's basically just, Take your deck of cards, shuffle them, put them up, <laughs> put them face down, and then if that faction is in the game but not having a, doesn't have a player uh, connected to it, mm -hmm. you simply just draw those top two cards and follow through the instructions. Mm -hmm. And that, combined with that events deck, creates enough dynamism 
in the game system to mean that you can't be sure exactly kind of how to how to handle stuff as the as the player mm. faction. So um, in theory, it's possible for you to play with those with more than one faction controlled by the AI. In, in, in actual fact, it's theoretically possible for the game to play itself if you just have a human who's there to read the cards and just you know follow through the follow through the actions. But yeah, it's it it plays. There's no additional pieces or, or really any additional rules to to the solar system. It was all built in from the very beginning, hmm. um, in, in large part because you know when we're designing games like that, it's it's much easier to test them if the solo mode is in there. It's not always easy to find number of players that we need and not tacked uh, and, on and not this complicated bot and all that kind of right stuff. and dan and i are in different time zones so you know we're not always able to to meet to kind of test stuff and find the time to do that anyway but yeah so and, and i really like the point that dan mentioned there about how that dynamic of when we have four players playing together that also is this is this um factor that that that's influences the way in which scoring works. So as you see someone get ahead and you realize, you know what, yeah, let's all, let's all attack Rome. You might, as, as Dan said, you might kind of readjust your strategy to kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh, face things in another, in another direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way in which the AI works is, um, you know, at a mechanical level is we have the, the, the map of, of the region of Britain that we're interested in, which effectually stretched from the south coast up to um, the border of Yorkshire with uh, Northumberland and, and the, the Scottish uh, region. Each region has a number. And so on a card, it'll say, you know, you can uh, move or tension it can be generated in a, a region of your choice. If it's the AI, then use the lowest numbered region or use the highest numbered region, uh, which fits the, the current you know, board state. So it it's, should be very simple to follow. Um, and yeah, you can decide to play a two player game where one of you is playing the Ikeni and the other one's playing Rome. And you could either just play with purely that setup or you could say, oh, let's have the Brigantes and the Silures in here, but they're just AI controlled. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of flexibility there, I think. All right, so we're talking uh, Rebellion Britannia. We're talking a, a GMT P500 project. These are pre-order and you know you, you put in your pre-order and you don't get charged unless they get up to 500 orders. Once they get 500 orders, the order is to print, they'll charge you. And then, you know, it's a, it's a way to kind of, it's a Kickstarter S thing to gauge demand, mm -hmm. right? So they're not gonna print something that has no demand. Uh, so like this is a way. So that that's really important. That's why the interviews are important to get the word out. You know, to we gotta get to those five hundreds and then beyond five hundred, as explained in the last episode, we'll see. You know, like there might be you know improvements in the art and more development and you know expansions might be in offing depending on how how popular it is. But they, you can see that you can track that through this uh, GMT P five hundred system. So uh, yeah, Rebellion Britannia, go ahead and check out the project. It is live. As we speak about that, check the show notes. I will have a link in the show notes uh, for this project. If it, it seems interesting to you, it's definitely interesting to me as somebody, again, post-colonial rebellion. It sounds like you've done a lot of thinking uh, in terms of not just kind of putting it in the rule book, but realizing rebellion and different ways of being in the mechanism. So I definitely very much appreciate what you have brought uh, to the table. 
So any last words about the project or to the audience? Or I'll go with Daniel first. Anything that you wanted to cover that we haven't touched on yet? No, I mean, I think uh, the, the only thing I'd say is that, you know, we hope that uh, maybe not expansions to this. We did initially start looking at, you know, the, the campaigns in Scotland. But I know that, that Morris in particular has put a lot of thought into other scenarios, other rebellions, uh, other historical situations that the the engine couldn't could model. So hopefully, you know, if if all goes well with this, there may be more to come. But we'll see. Yeah, I'll just add to that. You know, there's rebellions are, are asymmetric. They're kind of clunky, difficult, often for game designers to to address because of this this imbalance and sometimes they're very short-lived there you know there's a rising and it's quickly quashed and there's a small rider in the history notes of history books about it but that's that's about it but um you know we think we have a system that allows us to approach other topics and as Dan said we there are ways of, of tapping into these stories that are not so well known or even really kind of largely forgotten there are significant rebellions that haven't had a game treatment and uh, you know we think there's a way to do that through a, a system that has uh, a lot of these ideas that we began the, the, this episode talking about they're distilled into simple mechanical elements that you know this is going to be a small rule book we think this is not going to be a 60 page rule book that mm. is like oh my god i need examples of play to possibly understand what earth is happening here this should be a small uh a Robert, we're learning from our developer at GMT, Ken, Ken Colm, who's he's telling us that he's able to teach this game in about 10 minutes. Um, he's basically setting it up and saying, you know, read the, read the cards. If you have problems, let us know. But it, he says it's a short teach. So that's super encouraging because that's, you know, where we want it to be in terms of accessibility. Very nice. All right. So Daniel Bird, Maurice Suckling, it is the project is uh, Rebellion Britannia. Go check it out. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. If you could change your mind, you could change the world, people. So until next time, hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list. <laughs>